Hey y'all, and welcome to Devil's Food. I'm Kayla, and we talk about true crime every week. And welcome to today's episode. So let's get into it. Today we are going to be talking about Joel and Lisa Guy. So let's get a little bit of backstory on them. So Joel Michael Guy Sr. was 61 years old, and he was a pipeline engineering designer. Lisa was 55, and she was a human resource account payable administrator. They had been married since 1985, and they lived in Knoxville, Tennessee. Now, Joel had previously been married, and he had three daughters, Michelle, Angela, and Shandice. And Joel and Lisa had one son together named Joel Michael Guy Jr. So by all accounts, even though they were a blended family, all the girls absolutely adored Lisa, and she loved them as if they were her own kids. Joel Sr. and Lisa were very much in love, very happy. Lisa was the kind of wife that she loved to cook dinner and have it ready for her husband when he would get home, and she would greet him at the door every day. She always made sure that when the girls were at their house, that the kitchen would be stocked with all of their favorite foods. And overall, everyone was just really happy, and it was a great... So in November of 2016, Joel Sr. unexpectedly got laid off from his job. And he starts thinking, you know, I'm in my 60s. Do I really want to start over at another company and work myself from the bottom up? Or do I want to just go ahead and retire? So he talks about it with Lisa, and the two of them sit down and figure it out financially to see if they can make that work. And they realize that they can let Joel retire. And not only that, but Lisa could retire as well. So Joel Sr.'s mother had recently passed away. So Joel and Lisa came up with this idea to sell their bigger family home in Knoxville. And they would buy his mother's home and move into that, which was about 70 miles away. And in that new location, they would be closer to a lot of family. And they were just really excited. When they told everyone the plans, the family was really happy for them, really excited because they had worked their entire lives. They were very hardworking people. And it was just great news to be like, okay, you have worked so hard, live the rest of your lives and relax. Their goal was to have the house sold and have them be done moving by Christmas. So they wanted to have one big last holiday party in the family home, have all the kids, all the grandkids and just really go all out. So that Thanksgiving, November 24th, 2016, they invited all the kids over, all their uh, spouses, all the, all their kids, and even Joel Jr., who lived all the way down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, made it to the trip, which was a really big deal because most of the time he didn't make it to family events. So between him being there and then all the grandkids, it was just a really nice time. And Joel Jr. even gave his nieces and nephews some of his childhood toys that were in the home. And since, you know, they're moving and downsizing anyway, he was just giving his toys to them. It was just overall a really good holiday and like one last hoorah all together in the family home. So as the holiday festivities came to an end, all the daughters and their families left. And Joel Jr. ended up staying the night because it was too late for him to start the nine-hour drive back to Baton Rouge. So the following Monday rolls around and Jennifer Whited, who was Lisa's boss, 
and also a really good friend, keeping an eye on the clock because Lisa was late for work. Now, Lisa was never late for work, and if she was ever going to be a few minutes late or if she had to take the day off, she wasn't the type to just not show up. She always made sure everyone knew. But Jennifer had not heard a single word out of Lisa. Now, Jennifer waits until Lisa is officially 15 minutes late, and she calls her with no answer. She called over and over and even left text messages, but no one answered. So when Lisa didn't answer, she tried calling Joel Sr., thinking maybe Lisa's car broke down, maybe something happened. But when she tried calling Joel Sr., he didn't answer either. Now, Jennifer thought she never misses a day of work, but she knew Lisa would never miss this particular day of work because the staff was going to treat Lisa to lunch to celebrate her retirement. Now, Lisa worked there for a very long time. She knew everybody, and she was going to be really excited for this lunch. So Jennifer knew there is no way Lisa would miss this. So Jennifer, she kind of starts freaking out a little bit. So she calls the police and she asks for them to conduct a wellness check. Officer Stephen Ballard arrived at the scene. He knocked on the door with no answer. He takes a look around the house and there's nothing out of the ordinary at first glance. Officer Ballard couldn't do anything else really at this time. If no one answered the door, there was no sign of a break-in. There wasn't really anything that he could do about it. So he called it back to the station and told them that everything looked normal. There was no signs of anything or burglary or anything that could have happened. He did tell them that he did knock on the door, there was no answer, and he did notice that the cars were in the driveway. So Jennifer is made aware of this and she knows something is wrong, but she also knows that there's not really a whole lot she can do about it right now. So she just tries her best to keep calling Lisa, but she never answered. Around this time, Joel Sr.'s daughters are trying to get a hold of him with no answer. Now, it was one of the girls' birthdays, and Joel always called on their birthday, but no one had heard from their dad, so they knew something was wrong. So they make calls to the police, and they decide to do another wellness check. This time, they send out Officer Stephen Ballard again, and this time they also sent out Jeremy McCord as well. Officer McCord said that he pulled up to the house, everything looked fine but it just felt heavy it felt like something was wrong and he knew something had happened he just didn't know what so lisa and joel senior's car were in the driveway but there was no answer at the door and the front door was locked so they couldn't get in so mccord notices the for sale sign in the yard and he starts thinking that there's probably a key lock box somewhere and if he could find that box he could call the realtor and figure out what the lock box code would be to get in the house but he couldn't find a lock box so he calls the realtor and she said there is definitely a lock she said that there is definitely a lock box there but if it isn't maybe check the cars to see if there was a garage door opener in one of the vehicles they keep that information in the back of their mind but they wanted to wait to break into the house until they absolutely had to. So Officer McCord noticed that the front door handle had a bunch of scratches on it, and not only that, the handle didn't match the deadbolt. To him, it looked like whoever installed it just didn't really know what they were doing, and it was just beat up from a screwdriver or some kind of tool, and they just didn't know what they were doing. They find the back door, and they realize that something was off. They realized that the doorknob from the back door was taken off of that door and installed on the front door, which is why the front door knob 
didn't match the deadbolt. And they're like, well, that's a little weird. So the back door didn't have a knob on it. It was just a hole through the door. So Officer McCord looked into the hole, and through the small hole, he immediately he immediately felt heat and strong chemical odors radiating from inside the house. He could also see grocery bags sitting out that needed to be put away, and he could tell that there was a lot of uh, like freezer and fridge items that you wouldn't just leave out. Those were things that you would put away quickly. So he was like, you know, this is really, this is all just looking very, very strange. So that's when they decided that they were going to check the cars for a garage opener because they knew something was going on. And they managed to get through the garage and go into the home. So they went into the home and into the kitchen and there was a large pot sitting on the stovetop. The stove and oven were both on. The smell of the chemicals were so strong and so overwhelming that the detective said that the skin on his forehead began to tingle and the humidity in the house was just unbearable. They also noticed that the downstairs thermostat was set to 90 degrees and upstairs was 95 degrees. So that house was so unbearably hot. So they walk up the stairs and they hear a dog crying and they find the dog locked away in the laundry room in the heat with no food and no water. Now at the top of the stairs they saw blood splatter covering all the walls going up the stairs and they saw much and they saw multiple blood stains in the carpet. There was a pile of woman's clothes that had been cut off and they found the scissors next to them. Off the hallway into a bedroom they saw something so grotesque. They literally left the house and went outside and immediately called for backup and they labeled it a crime scene. Now they had walked into the exercise room. Inside the exercise room there was evidence of a struggle. The blinds were torn and there was a Bowflex machine that had been flipped over and there was an immense amount of blood on the floors and the walls everywhere. And in this room was a pair of severed male hands. <clears throat> so backup finally arrived and the investigators show up to collect evidence and the more they look around the house they start to piece together this nightmare that had happened. So a little bit of a warning this is going to get rough. If you need to fast forward a little bit now's the time to do it. Everyone who worked this scene said it would be one that they would never ever forget. So it took two days to go through the house and collect evidence and the chemicals were so strong that anybody who went into the house had to wear a hazmat suit. There were guns laid out on the dining room table, boxes of ammunition around the room, garbage bags covered the kitchen floor, and there were gallons of bleach, bags of baking soda. Uh, Lisa and Joel's wallets were on the table with the cash. Uh, Lisa and Joel's wallets were on the table with cash and they were next to hammers and pliers and Lisa's purse and she had left her windbreaker jacket on the dining room chair. So they checked the stove and oven that had been left on with the pot that sat on top of it. Inside of the pot was a boiling chemical and Lisa's head. There were multiple space heaters throughout the home. So not only was the thermostat's 
cranked so high, but then there are also heaters on top of it. So they went back to the stairs past the blood that they had noticed earlier and Lisa's clothes that were on the floor. And they found multiple different kinds of corrosive chemicals. In the master bedroom, the bed was covered with plastic sheets. And there was also a trail of plastic sheets that led to the master bathroom. There was also a blender. Inside the bathroom, the shower head had been removed and in its place was a garden hose attached. There were two 45-gallon plastic storage containers and these containers were full of dismembered body parts. And with the body parts, there was a mixture that they believed to be some kind of combination of water and corrosive chemicals that they had found at the house. At the time these bins were found, some of the body parts had already been completely eaten away to the bone. Keep in mind, Thanksgiving was Thursday, and this was only the following Monday. In another bathroom in the upstairs hallway was where they believed that the killer was tending to their own wounds and their own mess. They found bandages, they found surgical gloves, um, a set of male clothing, and there was just blood scattered throughout the bathroom. So they went back to the exercise room and found Joel Sr.'s clothing that had been cut up. And the room was an absolute mess, and it, and it showed clear signs of a struggle. Now, at this point, they kind of had an idea of what they had seen around the house. So they believed that this was the room where Joel Sr. was attacked and most likely killed. Now, in the spare bedroom, they found a box of ammo, a jug of chemicals that was covered in blood, and an open laptop that was connected to an external hard drive. And in the corner of the room, they found a red backpack. Inside the backpack, there was a printed out guide to the mechanics of a water heater, multiple books, and a notebook that had five pages of detailed step-by-step to-do list of the murders for Joel Sr. and Lisa Guy. The books in the bag all had the same name inscribed inside of all of them, so the investigators knew who this backpack and the detailed notebook belonged to. It belonged to Joel Guy Jr. He had written everything down. He wrote down what his motive was, how he was going to do it, every single detail like it was a grocery list just for him to check off. We need to get into Joel Jr. A little bit of backstory on Joel Jr. and what would have caused him to do these terrible things to his parents. Well, you remember how I said that the family, even though they were a blended family, they were all very happy, very close, well, that was true, except for Joel Jr. So while growing up, if he had his half-sisters at his house with him, even though the family would be all together and they would have family dinners and do the whole thing, he always separated himself from it and would hide away in his room. Joel Jr. was incredibly spoiled. I don't know if it was because he was the only boy, if it was because he was the baby of the family, or if he was the only boy biological child that they shared or if it was just a combination of all those things but he was extremely spoiled all of the kids were very well taken care of none of them wanted for anything but Joel jr was just on a different level he was very entitled and very selfish so at the time of the murder he was 28 years old and he had been in college for a total of nine years 
with absolutely nothing to show for it. So what's really unfortunate about that was that Joel Jr. was extremely book smart. He did very well in high school, and he just did well in school. But the problem was, once he got to college, he had no motivation, no drive, no sense of direction. He went to George Washington University in D.C. for one semester, and he just quit out of the blue. And when, during the time of the murders, he was attending Louisiana State University with the goal of becoming a plastic surgeon. So that just goes to show that he is smart enough, like he's a smart person, he was smart enough to get in, uh, at least through pre-med schooling, but he was just a hot mess in general. So while he's figuring out school for the past nine years, Joel Jr. did not have to pay a single dime for anything. Even though he was almost 30, he had never had a real job. The only thing that ever came close to that was he had to have a mandatory internship to do for a semester, but that was it. Joel Jr. did not pay for his apartment, his utilities, clothes, car, gas, Starbucks, whatever he needed, his parents took care of. His parents funded his entire life. In fact, the only reason why Lisa even had to work at that point was just so she could hand her entire paycheck to her son. She never kept a dime of what she earned. Now, his father also gave him money pretty frequently, but Joel Sr. had gotten sick of it, so he just decided to stop doing it. However, Lisa was still giving him money. So when Joel Sr. and Lisa began to really think about their finances for retirement, they realized that retirement was completely on the table for them. But they had to give up one thing. They had to stop funding Joel Jr., they wanted to tell him after Christmas, mainly because they didn't want to have to go through the whole holiday season with potential arguing, uh, attitude issues. They wanted to get through the holidays in their old home, enjoy the process of moving into their new home, and then tackle that, cross that bridge when they got to it with Joel Jr. So no one knows if Joel Jr. had this talk with his parents before Thanksgiving, or maybe he overheard it from somebody, or maybe he just put two and two together on his own about the parents selling the house and his dad getting laid off, and he wasn't trying to find another job. Either way, Joel Jr. figured out that his parents were planning on cutting him off. Which, I mean, it's truly a tragedy to think that you're almost 30 and you might have to get a job. It's truly a tragedy. So Joel Jr. gets to planning on what to do because Lord knows he is not going to get a job because he is not a common peasant. So Joel Jr. knows that Lisa has a life insurance policy through her job, meaning for him to get his grimy, greasy hands on that money, he would have to do something before she retired. And he wrote all this down on the notepad that the investigators found. So his original plan was he was going to put something in the garbage disposal to break it and his dad would go under the sink to fix it and that would be when Joel Jr. would attack. Which is just the most immature, childish, cowardly plan I'd ever heard of. First of all, you're almost 30 years old and you break something and you want to ask your daddy to help you so you can attack him. Get the frick frack out of here. I couldn't believe it when I heard that. So the next part of his plan would be after he killed his dad, the plan, was, the plan would be to sneak attack his mother. 
But first, he would have to get Joel Sr.'s DNA under her fingernails so it looked like they had a fight. Meaning, he was going to kill both of his parents and frame his father to make it look like his father did it. This man is the biggest troll I've ever heard of in my life. Joel Jr. also wrote down detailed instructions on how to not leave DNA all over the house. He was like, don't touch this, don't go there, don't do that, don't stay too long. He wrote out everything. And thankfully, Joel Jr. is just a literal buffoon and couldn't listen to his own instructions because his DNA was everywhere in that house. He also wrote down a plan to burn the house down. He even wrote that sunlight would mask the flame so no one would see the fire and everyone would be at work so no one would report it. So I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that nine years of college education did not benefit him at all because in case you're wondering, the sunlight doesn't make fire invisible. You can see a house fire during the day. <laughs> in case you did not know that, now you do. <laughs> Investigators thought maybe that was why he had plans for the water heater in his backpack. They were thinking he was going to somehow set the house on fire using the water heater. But he did not detail that information. But he also didn't need to because there was just so much evidence against him at this point. So this notebook got dubbed the quote, book of premeditation. And they also found receipts from Joel Jr. for buying supplies. Because apparently he had been shopping throughout the entire month of November getting ready for this event. He paid for everything in cash and tried to do self-checkout at every store because he thought he wouldn't get tracked down or linked in any way if he used self-checkout. So Joel Jr. wasn't planning on going to Thanksgiving dinner, or at least he didn't tell anybody he was going to, and no one expected him to show up because he never did. But all of his sisters and his parents were pleasantly surprised, and they were shocked that he showed up. They were actually kind of like, what the heck is going on? But he talked with everybody, and it was a great time. So I think they all took it as it's a good sign from him, like maybe he was going to try to make an effort with the family now. Uh, I also said before he gave his toys to the children, and his sisters were absolutely shocked by this because it was just so out of character for him because he was just such a selfish person. And she even said that he was so distant, she honestly didn't even know if he knew any of the kids' names. Which is really sad because at the time, the family genuinely thought that they were bonding. He's giving away these toys because the parents are selling the house. But what they didn't know was that he was planning on destroying everything. So it's kind of like, hey, I'm destroying this entire house and everything and everyone in it. But this way, at least my stuff is okay because it's going somewhere else. Which is messed up. So on November 26, 2016, Lisa went to Walmart to pick up a few things and the surveillance camera caught her leaving at around 12.15 p.m. While Lisa was at the store, Joel Sr. went to the exercise room to squeeze in a little workout while she was gone, and that was when Joel Jr. attacked. The medical examiner that worked on this case said that she couldn't give an exact number to anything because ev everything that she reported was in the terms of being, quote, at least, meaning she knew that there was at least this many injuries found. But she had no idea what the exact number was because there was so much damage done to the bodies 
she there was no way she would know the exact number of anything. So Joel Sr. was stabbed at least 42 times all over his body, hitting his liver, lungs, kidneys, and breaking multiple ribs. Some of those stab wounds were about six inches deep. Joel Sr. put up one hell of a fight, so his body was covered in defensive wounds. But again, no definite answer on how many. Lisa was stabbed at least 31 times, and nine of her ribs had been severed. Joel Jr. had completely dismembered both of them, putting their body parts in storage containers. One of his sisters told police that she remembered seeing these storage containers in the backseat of his car on Thanksgiving Day, but she didn't think anything of it, which, why would you, why would you think anything of it? What she had no idea was that he was planning on putting her parents in those containers. So Joel Jr. increased the house temperature and added all the chemicals to the storage bins to speed up the decomposition process, and he also wanted to melt off any fingerprints. He also wrote down that as the as bleh. he also wrote down that as the bodies were breaking down in the tubs, he was flushing the flesh down the toilet, and specifically wrote down to not use the garbage disposal. As he did this, he would baste his parents' bodies with more chemicals. I mean, this man is just straight sick in the head. Also, this man, well, he's not really a man. This boy was so lazy, he never worked, he never did anything for himself. He never, hard, he never had a hard day's work in his entire life. And he picked the absolute most intense, laborious way to kill his parents. This was the most work he had probably ever done in his entire life. If he had put a fraction of effort that he did into these murders and the planning, he could have been a plastic surgeon. He could have literally done anything. For his alibi, he wrote down that he was going to send an automated text to Lisa to prove that he was in Baton Rouge and she was a lot. So the way that the insurance policy was written, the beneficiary would receive $500,000 for both Joel Sr. and Lisa if they were to go dead if they were to go missing or be dead. But in order for anyone to get the entire amount, Joel Sr. would also have to be gone. So Joel, G Joel Jr. realized that he could not kill Lisa without killing Joel Sr. as well because Joel Sr. would have gotten half the money. Which means that Joel Jr. would not have gotten the entire $500,000. So Joel Jr. also knew that he was the beneficiary and he knew exactly what his sisters would be entitled to because he wrote down that the $500,000 would be all his because with his dad being dead, he would get all the money. He also wrote down that if his siblings died, he would get even more money. So after Joel Jr. killed his parents, he went into Lisa's accounts and transferred money. So he had about $10,000 for prepaid and rent. He also paid months in advance for his utilities because he knew he wasn't going to get that life insurance money right away, so he needed to make sure everything on his end was taken care of because, heaven forbid, he had to struggle. 
So investigators literally had everything they needed to arrest Joel Jr. They just had to find him. So what they didn't realize was that Joel Jr. actually drove by at some point and they, he saw the investigation and he didn't have time to do anything else with his plan so he just headed back to Baton Rouge at that point. So police are on the lookout in Baton Rouge and they go to his apartment where they find him outside of his apartment and they immediately arrest him on the spot. In his car, they found a gas canister, a KitchenAid mixer, and a meat grinder attachment, which was on his list that he wrote down to bring a blender and a meat grinder to quote-unquote grind the meat, and he had left the blender in his parents' bedroom. Inside the apartment, they found a bathtub filled with chemicals, and there was a bone inside, which told them that clearly he had been experimenting and trying to find different things to practice on to see what worked. They found a 12-gauge shotgun and all the receipts for everything he bought, all the chemicals, the bleach sprayer, the plastic bins. He bought everything, and he had all the receipts. Now, unfortunately, because of legal loopholes with search warrants and all that kind of stuff, none of those findings were allowed into evidence to be at the trial. But also, they didn't because Joel Jr. gave them everything they could possibly need on a silver platter. So thankfully, that didn't make or break the trial. So four years later, September 2020, Joel Jr.'s trial starts. It was a four-day-long trial consisting of 27 witnesses and over 700 pieces of evidence. So two days before the jury selection for the trial, Joel Jr. put in a put in a request to represent himself in court because if he was found guilty, he wanted to make sure that he would receive the death penalty. That was the goal. Which prosecution wasn't even going for the death penalty, so it literally didn't matter because Joel Jr. was never going to get what he wanted. And Joel Jr. knew that, so he wrote a letter to the judge that gave the judge his permission to execute him. Which again, nine years of college... And this erectile dysfunction of a human being just doesn't realize uh, he can't sentence himself. Also, you don't need the judge to have your permission to sentence you. The judge can do what he wants. The jury can do what they want. This man is something else. Which, during this whole process, Joel Jr.'s main worry was whether or not he would still qualify to get the life insurance policy. He did not get anything. Due to the Slayer Rule, he did not qualify. The Slayer Rule states that the beneficiary won't receive anything if they are the ones that harmed the person that died. And this rule also covers if the person killed another person that would have gotten the money first. So if someone killed someone to get them out of the way, to get the money, all that... So basically, this clause covered Joel Jr. killing his mother and killing his father as well. So the life insurance company basically let the court decide where the money would go. So all of Joel's daughters had to deal with the murder trials, but also with their own lawyers to ensure that Joel Jr. did not receive a dime because the decision was up to the courts, so now they had to fight for it. So during this trial... Joel Jr. would periodically laugh and smile 
with his lawyer, and he showed no emotion when the medical examiner went into specific details about the state of his parents' bodies. The medical examiner said that the amount of work was so much that would have gone into doing all this. It would have taken a very long time. And they also talked about how difficult it was to disarticulate body parts at the joints. Proving that Joe Jr., for the first time in his life, put in substantial amount of work in the overkill of his parents. So Joel Jr.'s, Joel Jr.'s lawyers tried to argue that there was still room for reasonable doubt. They said that his attitude before the murder was happy and outgoing, and they claimed that Joel Jr. hadn't been cut off from his parents yet, so he really did not have a motive. They also said there was no proof that the notebook belonged to him, because there was no handwriting analysis done, and they didn't test DNA on the inside pages of the book. They only tested the DNA they found on the outside of the book. Which, to me, sounds like they were just grasping at straws. And on October 2nd, 2020, Joel Jr. was found on two counts of premeditated first-degree murder three counts of felony murder, and two counts of abuse on a corpse. While waiting for sentencing, he requested to have his own cell in solitary confinement because that's where he would be more comfortable. So four days after being found guilty, he wrote a letter to the Tennessee Department of Corrections with, with his concerns. In the letter read, quote, This was a bad idea. I am psychologically unstable. I'm having fantasies of using my fingers to gouge the gentleman's eyes out of his head while he's unconscious. And there wouldn't and he wouldn't be able to defend himself. Given that in these fantasies it is essential that I use my fingers, a no sharps restriction will accomplish nothing in deterring these actualizations. I'm writing this letter because I don't want to end up with a disciplinary infraction or worse more criminal charges now. Now, do I logically believe that this gentleman deserves to be blind? I don't know what to do. I shouldn't be allowed access to another person while they're unconscious. This was a bad idea. Please stop me from acting on these fantasies. Thanks. Joel Guy. This letter did nothing for his calls, in case you're wondering. Which, I strongly recommend looking up pictures of this man. Um, I can just picture him writing this letter and being very condescending to people. And almost every picture you see of him, his head is tilted back. So he's literally looking down his nose at people. There's also pictures where he has very long, like, black hair. And he literally just looks like a D-list actor auditioning for a role of Twilight. Specifically, he was going for Michael Sheen's character, Arrow, who was in the Volturi. And he did, like, the really weird laugh. I'm not going to do that now, because I don't want that to live on the internet forever. Um, but look him up. It's going to be on the Instagram page. Um, you won't be disappointed, because that is the most accurate description. D-list actor going for the role of Arrow. Arrow. Yeah. Just every time I see him, I just see... Just an incel mouth breather with no basic life functions, but somehow thinks he's better than everybody, and I just don't have the patience for him. So at sentencing, the judge said 
It seemed like Joel was proud of his actions, and he doubted that Joel's depraved mind would change no matter how much time he was put away. He said he looked pleased with his actions, and he told Joel he wasn't as smart as he thought he was. So Joel Jr. was sentenced to life in prison, and he will not be eligible for parole until he serves 130 years. So I guess we'll see how that works out for him. Um, I think that when the day comes, it you know, we'll have a long-awaited part two. We'll see how that goes. So Joel Jr. is put away for the rest of his life, which is for the best. And to end on a better note, I wanted to read a little something from Joel and Lisa's obituary because I feel like it just says a lot about their character and the lives that they had. So I kind of want to end on a better note. So let's read that. Joel and Lisa were married for 31 years and they were true soulmates. They both had a great sense of humor. They were loving and kind-hearted and the most compassionate people. They were the loves of each other's lives. They enjoyed anything that involved being together, which included being in nature and being on the water. They loved their kids and adored their grandchildren. In lieu of flowers, please consider a donation in the memory of the Young Williams Animal Shelter. Lisa was an animal lover and they both loved their dog, Jake, as if he was their own child. And young Williams took great care of Jake until a family member could pick him up. And in case you're wondering, all of the children were listed in the obituary except Joel Jr. So in honor of Joel and Lisa, I'm going to find the link to that shelter. Um, and if you guys or if anybody wants to make a donation in the names of Joel and Lisa Guy... Uh, you guys can definitely do that in, you know, in a little bit of darkness and tragedy. We'll, you know, we'll try to spread some, some goodness. Spread the goodness where you can. So I'm going to try to find that link if it still exists. And if I can find it, I will definitely share it. So thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, I'll see you next time. Make sure you share the podcast. Make sure you leave a review and you share on the socials and you, you just, you just do all the things. Okay. We're not, we're not new to the internet. We know how this works and I greatly appreciate everything you guys do, even if it's just listening. So I will see you guys next week. Bye.